Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, what now in terms of when and if the Atlanta Civic Center, that location, will be redeveloped? Now, last week, a negotiation deal was reported to have been reached between developers, New York-based Tishman Spire, and Atlanta-based H.J. Russell and Company. Uh, A lot of entities were involved in this. The 20-acre site is owned by the Atlanta Housing. In just a moment, I'll speak with the Authority's President and CEO, Eugene Jones, about what's next. All that and more. Now, today is June 1st, and it's when hurricane season officially starts. As the danger from extreme storms and from extreme heat goes up because of climate change, a few Atlanta religious leaders gathered for a prayer vigil for the victims of natural disasters, as we hear from Molly Samuel. Rabbi Lydia Medwin of the temple cited Jewish teaching, saying that if you believe it's possible to destroy something, you must also believe it's possible to repair it. Because we do still have a window of opportunity here to repair this planet, to repair our relationship to her bounty. Rabbi Medwin and others spoke to a handful of people at the temple about the urgency to act on climate change. Reverend Haciel Hernandez-Garcia from Central Presbyterian Church said he sees his commitment to creating a more just society as deeply connected to environmental sustainability. As a Christian, if we are to exhibit the kingdom of God in this earth, we have to work and advocate for policies and legislation that care for this earth and its inhabitants. Everyone deserves to live a life well lived. The advocacy group Georgia Interfaith Power and Light organized the event. Federal legislation on climate change from the Biden administration is still stalled. Molly Samuel, WABE News. In other news, problems with elections in DeKalb County are now affecting the results of every race in last week's primary. The county election board missed Tuesday's state deadline to certify its results. The main problem centers around the Democratic primary for County Commission District 2. It is believed a programming issue related to a candidate dropping out of the race caused questionable results to be produced. Now, Elections Director Keisha Smith told the board Tuesday that a hand count of ballots is done, but that she was not ready to make the results public. We've worked diligently. We have uh, worked, you know, throughout the night, long hours, and I cannot provide today an accurate um, calculation or tabulation of votes. The state of Georgia's deadline for it to certify the May 24th, 24th primary is next Friday. Staying in the cab, Druid High School in DeKalb County will finally get the upgrades students and parents have been wanting. The school board unanimously approved a plan yesterday to modernize the school. Now, when officials shelved a plan to modernize the school back in February, students produced a video documenting problems at the school, and it was a lot. 
Facilities Director Bobby Moncrief told the board the most serious problems like water damage have been addressed. The majority of the water has uh, been taken care of. It seems we might have a little bit of a water seal issue and we're going to investigate that a little bit more, but that should still be taken care of. The district estimates the upgrades will cost about $50 million to complete. The state recently hired an advisor to oversee DeKalb's building repairs after the board said it would only address the most severe problems in the district. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. It was a long-awaited announcement. Finally, it appeared negotiations would lead to redeveloping the Atlanta Civic Center. Located at the intersection of Piedmont Avenue and Ralph McGill Boulevard, the 20-acre site is owned by the Atlanta Housing. Now, the site also includes, I believe, a 4,600-seating theater. A little backstory here. There was a deal that didn't go through. This was back in Mayor Kasim Reed's administration when the city owned it back in 2016. The following year, the city sold the Civic Center to the Atlanta Housing. Now, got it? Last week, it was reported that a negotiation deal was reached between developers, New York-based Tishman Spire and Atlanta-based H.J. Russell and Company. Invest Atlanta was in. A lot of people put a lot of time into this. And then the news breaking last Thursday, this was going to happen. But then the next day, Tishman Spire pulled out of the deal by sending an email to Atlanta Housing. So what now? Joining me from Atlanta Housing CEO and President... Eugene Jones. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Let's begin here because I want folks to understand what was the the housing agency's vision for this, the the, the Civic Center site? Because you all had a really nice RFQ. I mean, you had a whole nice presentation of what you wanted. But for our listeners who were not familiar, what were some of the, I guess, the highlights of what you were hoping this would be developing to? Well, we had a great community. activity. We got the community involved in our processes. Um, and we did a due diligence and we really ironed it out with the community and what they were looking for. And so we come to an agreement. And so that's how we mirrored the RFP. And so we can get the best uh, development that we can in that area, especially with the performing arts or the, the theater there. And um, we wanted to build affordable housing. We wanted to make a, a mixed use type of environment and just um, provide um, uh, uh, a great neighborhood, uh, which was used to be called Buttermilk. I remember going back and reading that, you know, some of the requirements you all said, I'm going to quote you here, you seek to engage a master developer that will be responsible for entitlements and approvals, environmental assessments and testing, infrastructure, community engagement related to the mixed use and mixed income components of the site. Had you felt like all of this you all had worked through, you were confident with Tishman Spire, and of course we all know the work of Atlanta-based H.J. Russell and company, so you all felt like this was the best partnership? 
Absolutely. Based on the evaluation team, they did a fantastic job. The community was involved. Absolutely. It was the best proposal that we received. Was there, One of the best. Okay. So was there any money that you all had to, I mean, other than for the, the study and all that, was there any money that y'all had to tie up that, that you felt like would ensure this negotiation deal becoming final? Did you have to do any deals with the city? No, not at all. Uh, the, you have to go through a process, and we're very vehemently about the process. Once we award a developer, then the, the most work that's done with my staff is the MDA, which is the Master Developer Agreement. That's when you start uh, discussing about financing, timeline, phases, and the, the number of units we're going to put back on that site. Invest Atlanta was involved in this. You had talked to some other organizations. Did you have any idea? Uh, CEO Jones, that Tishman Spire had any questions that might have made this deal not go through, or you just were totally blindsided by their decision to pull out? Well, we were totally blindsided because we went through the whole um, we went through the whole process all the way to the end. We answered any questions that the developer had at that point, and so we closed that and we made a presentation to the board, substantiating that that the last discussion that we made. Did you have or did anyone whisper to you or pull you aside and say, well, Eugene, this could possibly be a problem? Was there anything wrong you all felt that possibly put a hitch in all of this? I just want to be clear about Not that. At Not at all. Not at all. We had a great uh, board who stuck their neck out based on our presentation to award this to the developer. We didn't see anything coming. You get this email. From Tishman Spire, you, you you said in an email, I imagine that you would have maybe liked a phone call, but did you talk to, I, I believe it was the CEO of the company? What did they tell you? Have you had that conversation? I, I never talked to the to the, um, to the CEO of Tishman. I talked to um, a senior VP for diversity and, and uh, government relations. And we had a conversation. She said that um, Tishman was interested in pulling out of the deal. I said, well, if that's the case, you need to send us a letter acknowledging that, and then we'll move on from there. In the email, based on the statement you all provided, you say the Tishman Spire has, quote, determined that the project is not right for us at this time. Do you think the economy inflation concerns could be an issue? And I know that's pure speculation on your part because they haven't really given you a concrete uh, reason for pulling out. Any speculation on your part? Could it be related to well, the economy? I, I just don't think so because we had two other finalists in this in this uh, process and they never mentioned anything about the economy or things not working uh, correctly based on what's going on, inflation. No one's brought that up to our attention, nor have we had any other knowledge. And developers around the city still are progressing and moving forward with their deals. So I don't see anything different from this one. Looking back at this original proposal that you all have, do you think, Eugene, maybe you, are you all going to change anything? Or are you going to add anything? There were some concerns about was there enough green space involved in the plan? What about the sustainability and infrastructure? Anything that you all need to go back then and maybe change? Absolutely not. We're going to move forward. We have two other viable uh, uh, developers. We're going to go to them. We're going to look at doing another best and final, going through an evaluation process, and hopefully we can submit something to the board for approval in July, no later than July of this year. So no plans to change anything of this original 
proposed idea with this site? Do you want to keep it as it is, just get a new partner in here? And of course, if any, if any one of those developers can come back with more affordable housing, absolutely. We'll op always open up that door in order to support the mayor's endeavor, about 20,000 affordable housing units in the next eight years. So we're always going to look for more, always. Do you think having a developer, and we know the developers can come from different parts of, of the nation, but when we talk about Atlanta, and goodness, you and I both know we have this conversation all the time, and, and I think every city is like this in terms of wanting to make sure that when folks come into our city, our community, that they understand what's important here. Any idea if, if there are local, we know that H.J. Russell was involved, any other local developers you all could get that can come in and really understand what you all wanted to do and maybe you don't have to worry about will they pull out? I think we're very confident in, in the last two finalists. I think we, we can move forward. They have they provided us with some good proposals. We'll go through it again. Uh, we'll make sure that we cross our you know, T's and dot our I's just like we did before. And we'll submit that to the board. We're very confident that we're going to move this process forward. Yes, we're going to be behind maybe a month or two, but when we uh, select whatever the board uh, uh, agrees to, then we're going to move faster than we've uh, done before because this is very, very important to the city of Atlanta and also to the mayor's office. Speaking of the mayor's office, Mayor Andre Dickens was on this program yesterday. We talked a lot about economic development, the way it happens, the way it should happen, the way it shouldn't happen in this city. Legally, were you all, is there anything that city lawyers, was there anything legally that Tishman could be on the hook for? Because I feel like there has been a lot of money that's been tied up in this that maybe you all have lost. It's the cost of doing business. Well, well wait a minute. Now, how much cost? Well, it's just cost us our time and effort with our staff while doing the evaluation. This is what we do. This is how we go through a process on selecting the developers. So there's no change. It's only staff time. Uh, we do what we were, uh, have been mandated to do and what the board allows us and gives us uh, the, the approval process when we have an, uh, a decision to make. And so that that's our, our time and investment. This is what we do. Now, this wasn't on your watch, uh, CEO Jones, because you weren't a part of the Atlanta Housing then. But when this was sold to Atlanta Housing, uh, some might have said, well, you know what, maybe that was a bad deal. Now, look, maybe it's not fair, but it, through your lens, would would have been better maybe if the city just sold it to an affordable housing developer back then? And you, and then maybe you and I wouldn't even be having this conversation. I don't know. I'll make no comment on that. Okay. But you do have an opinion about it. Well, I always have an opinion about it, but I'm not sure what happened back in those days in that, in that time frame. So I would be remiss to, to speak on that because I'm not sure what was going on with the city at that time. That's fair. So that's want to make a comment. Fair enough. Do you think, because you're all going to keep the actual, the old arena, the theater part of this, right? You want to keep that, correct? Absolutely. I think that's a, a, a gem in the neighborhood. I think if we can promote something uh, along those lines that's going to be uh, uh, conducive with the surrounding community and build upon that. I'm so excited about that theater. I mean, when you go in there, you have 4,000 4, seats, beautiful Everything's back there in its original state. I'm just saying that's just a marvel uh, to, to see and, and, and try to make this work. Let me ask you this, because you mentioned you have two other developers in the running, right? So what was it about Tishman that you all ultimately went with them? Because you got some other folks that are just as good. Well, I, I can't discuss that because we still have an open procurement and I don't want to uh, make a comment to that 
because that gives the other finalists an opportunity to hone in on, on that. But I, I just don't want to do that at the time. We have an open procurement. I want to make sure we protect the integrity of that procurement process. Well, do you want to tell them at least, please don't send me an email and pulling out the last minute? Is there a way that we can have a more? I mean, come on, Eugene, you know this, man. I mean, look, you sound ticked off, and that's understandably. Come on, man. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think anyone's going to pull out. Based on the information that we put in the statement, I think everyone, we've been working professionally with these developers, and so we, 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 we're very confident. And my staff is very confident they did a heck of a job, and we're going to continue doing that job represent the city of Atlanta. And so we're going to move forward in, in a positive way. Okay. If you can't reveal what was so fabulous about Tishman Spire and how they ultimately won the, or I guess one's the best word, or they were selected, then what, <laughs> what are you laughing at me for? <laughs> We, we do we do want to make sure that we do something innovative. We just don't want the same cookie-cutter kind of development. We want something that's impressive in that community, but not something that's an eyesore or anything like that. We have a lot of community support. We're going to go back to the community next week, Monday. We're going to talk about the process. We're going to talk about their involvement. And then we're going to move forward. We're going to press on. I mean, that's just a, a great um, uh, strategy that we've always been using. We've been very successful. Yes, we have our hits and some people don't like it. We don't have enough units that we're providing in, in the scenario. So we have to explain that. Mm-hmm. It's all always going to be about money and financing. And so we try to put the best foot forward. But people, uh, individuals have to understand, whatever we do here, we have to get an approval by HUD, mm-hmm. U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. So not only do we have to be approved by the Board of Commission, we have to be have it approved by the by the U.S. Department of Housing and Development. So we still have two other hurdles to go through, but we're very confident that we'll we'll succeed. And I want to be fair, too, because we did reach out to the mayor's office for a statement. And according to spokesperson Brian Thomas, he said, quote, while the administration is disappointed with the developer's sudden withdrawal after an eight-month-long procurement process with Atlanta Housing, we are fully confident that the Atlanta Housing Board of Commissioners will move to select a new development partner that shares our collective vision of a site that brings equity and opportunity and, you know, in part. That part about shares our collective vision of a site. That's why I was going back to the importance of maybe having a developer that has some some ties here in Atlanta because they understand that process. I mean, that's a whole other segment when we talk about the Atlanta way of doing things. But folks here, when it comes to economic development, you know this, uh, CEO Jones, there is this this innate and sort of very personal and, and folks are sensitive about the types of development that happen are, are, are going to be redeveloped. And we look at the Civic oh, yeah. Center. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about this shares our collective vision from the mayor's office. That's how do you ensure that? That's powerful. Because we want to, we want to provide an economic opportunity, and we're talking about jobs. We're talking about um, uh, op- opportunity when it comes to contracting, and also we're going to have home ownership units there. We want that have that opportunity for people in that community or outside the community to to invest in that neighborhood based on the amenities that we're going to be providing in the surrounding community. We're not too far from Martyr. Uh We're going to have a performing, you know, whatever we're going to do with the theater. It's just going to be robust, and we're going to hopefully uh, entice other opportunities in, in that neighborhood to build upon that, build units, build retail. It, it's just phenomenal, and, mm-hmm. and that's what the mayor's office, that's what the city should be doing. It's a partnership. We have great partners. We'll continue that partnership. Let me ask you this. Are you 
Are you all embracing a name change for the neighborhood as part of promoting this redevelopment? Now, I tweeted a while ago because I had no idea about Sono or South of North. I'm going to be fair about that. I'm like, you know, we always come up with names for neighborhoods and, you know, that's just my personal opinion is a lot. But is is embracing the name change for the neighborhood as part of promoting this to redevelopment? Does that matter, you think? And is it fair for well, legacy it, residents? I think I think it matters, but it's the community that we have to get involved in. And, and we, we take their lead and, and, and make sure that uh, it's representative of the whole community, not just a few people. And so we'll, we'll address that when we meet with the community again. Uh, I'm not sure if they do want to change it. Uh, they may change it, but we have to, we just can't arbitrarily and say, okay, we're going to call it this. Or we arbitrarily going to call it. No, we, 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 we cannot do it that way. We have to get the community involvement. Uh, we have to think what's best for the community that's going to draw people into that into that neighborhood and just make it the best thing that uh, we can possibly make. What would be a timeline for you that is acceptable in terms of being able to come back out and say, now we think we have the developer that we need. We think no later than July, no later than August, but we're looking at July. If we can do it sooner, we will. Then we'll go back to the community. We'll talk about negotiations and then we'll go from there. One thing that we the Atlanta housing will be doing is being very transparent and being very honest. All you have to do is pick up the phone. We'll tell you what's going on to the extent that we can, but we're always going to be a partner within our community. I have a great staff who understand that we have great community involvement. And I just commend our evaluation team and my whole staff. Atlanta Housing CEO and President Eugene Jones, thank you so much for taking the time coming on in short notice. I appreciate it. The community appreciates you and the ans- and your answers you gave. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Anytime. Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. As you just heard from Atlanta Housing President and CEO Eugene Jones, we are following the breaking news of a developer withdrawing from negotiations to work on the long, vacant Civic Center site. Now, yesterday I spoke with Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens about the challenges of housing and economic development for the city, from developers needing to engage with the communities, which is what CEO Jones talked about, that they want to enter, and the latest with West End Mall. Neighborhoods have been changing for a while, but you and I sort of had off the record conversation about housing. So you ready for the affordable housing part of this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Now, I right want to go back, though, because in Mayor Bottom's administration, she had the one billion dollar affordable housing goal. First question, is that still part of your administration or is that off the table and you've got to come up with something different? Yeah. So um, mine is more about the number of units. You can put a number of a billion out there, and I think that that was, you know, her goal, and she was working. But didn't her goal have a, a twenty thousand unit or something like that? Or 20? I'm not exactly sure how many units she okay. said, but I'm saying twenty thousand units over the next eight years. And what what we're gonna do is we have a lot of land in this city. 
a lot of land that is underutilized or vacant, that the city owns that the city owns either through Invest Atlanta, Atlanta Housing Authority, uh, MARTA, and even APS has old schools that they're not using, school facilities that may, they, I mean, they're just ripe for us to be able to coordinate and utilize those. The other thing is there are some funding available, and I've made some funding available in my first budget and in the uh, American Rescue Plan money, but there's always there's money out there. We just need to be more coordinated and focused and set the stage. You have the land. It takes time to build for people who are listening to this program right now saying, but I'm trying to find something now. Yeah. We've had this conversation not too long ago, and I asked the panel, you were on it, is it too? Is Atlanta too late right now trying to, quote, fix this? And what does fixing look like? Yeah. Is it just the 20-something thousand units? Oh, no. 20,000 won't solve all our no. problems. It's not enough. Uh, it's a goal that we're going to hit. It's a big goal. Um, but our problem, you know, more people come to Atlanta every day. Everybody's coming here. And so you know, inflation is high. You heard, you know, the cost of even buying a used car. You can buy, buy a new car, sell it, and, and make money off of it. This is a crazy time that we're living in. So what we have to do if someone is unable to wait for us to build out all 20,000 units, which, by the way, I've already broke ground or, or cut ribbons on over 1,000 units already in the first five months. We are aggressive right now. Okay, but what's available now? Yeah, I, I out of that probably thousand, you probably got about three, four hundred that are that is somewhere that you can apply for right now, and but the deal is we do have to have a lot more um, construction, and you know we got down payment assistance for your your listeners that are looking to buy a home because that's important for me too. A lot of these are apartments for rent. But uh, and we need that. But we also need people to be able to buy homes. So I got a lot of money out there for down payment assistance that you can go to investatlanta.com uh, to, to apply for. I want to be very fair because I, I told you this. I was with a friend. We were driving around on the west side looking at houses. Mm-hmm. Went over in Holderness and shout out to Holderness. So y'all just don't get mad at me. A house on Holderness just sold for a half million dollars plus. Yeah. There's yeah. a million dollar Million dollar. Now, I used to play ball over off Edgewood back in the day, and they were like, get out of here before the sun go down. <laughs> now, there's million dollar homes, townhomes, town wherever homes, they are, yeah. on Edgewood. Yeah. So, you know, that that tells you gentrification is real. And let me just park right here for a second. In 2013, when I was running for city council, I would tell people in Westview, near Holderness, mm-hmm. Some of those folks over there were saying, we don't need no more affordable housing. Y'all dump all y'all affordable housing on the west side and the south side. That's what y'all do as leaders. And this is when I was running for office, and they were saying, we don't want no more affordable housing. I said, wait a minute now. You saw what's happened on Emmon Park, and you've seen what's happened in West End. You're literally next door to West End. You're Westview. And then I said, that train is going to hit Grove Park, and then my neighborhood, Carrier Heights, and mm-hmm. then Sylvan, and all these other. And folks were saying, we don't need no affordable houses. Said, Please know that what's affordable today will not be affordable tomorrow. And what we're trying to do is continue to make sure that people stay in their homes and we give programs to help them fix their roofs, be able to fix those windows that are, you know, leaking air and all that stuff so that they can stay in their homes so they don't have to leave because just because you sell your house for 250 today, yay, because you bought it for 85 Where are you going? Nine, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? And if you're a senior, you're going to be farther away from your nexus of knowledge where you have your grocery store, your church, or whatever. Speaking of folks being able to stay in their home, and I've we've had this conversation before. What is the latest with I think it's four 
residents left in People's Town, mm-hmm. Mayor Dickens. This is going back two administrations now. Is it is it not time for the city to somehow just come to some yeah. agreement with these homeowners? I remember a clip, and I, it was from one of the local stations. I can't remember which one. And you said they could stay. Yeah. But now there's some new events. What is? What do you want to see happen for these four households in in People's Town? Yeah, this, you know. So that I've, I've, you know, as new mayor, I've inherited a lot of things, and even the previous mayor inherited this problem and a couple others. Um, this one is personal to me. I've met with these families, sat in their living rooms, talked to them on the phone. Mm-hmm. They call me, text me, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm advised not to always respond, but I do. Um, and I care about them, and I want to see them made whole. I was truthful when I said I didn't want to see them ever get evicted, and in particularly that was November, and I was saying it's getting cold. You are not going to get kicked out of your home, not on my watch, while it's, you know, 30 degrees or 40 degrees outside, and we've held true to that. Currently, we are in great conversations about what the path is forward to make them whole and to make sure that we can reduce the flooding for the rest of the community members. So that is an ongoing, which I believe I'll see the end of in this year. We will not be talking about this next year. Does it mean that you're hoping then they can stay or you all offer them fair value for their homes? Yes, the second one, the latter why should they move if there's no flooding? Are you all sure? Because now well, there's another flooding. Now there's another issue there because based on the reports, mm-hmm. other reports that perhaps all the information wasn't sent to the courts in terms of the people who came in and did the study. You know, it's, yeah. it's a whole lot of paperwork and all that involved. You yeah. would rather for these households to sell because you have concerns about flooding. Yeah, so, I mean, I came at this completely at a zero state. You know, I'm an engineer. I like to look at things from, you know, total, you know, aspects of it. So I looked at the engineering of it and the vault that's necessary right now to be able to retain all this water. It's a system. So there's three vaults that are necessary because this is this is a bowl where they I've live. Been over it's, there. It's, I, and I've gone over there after it's rain. And I want to be honest, I I didn't see any flooding, but maybe I didn't go on the right day. Yeah, well, you got to go on a what they call a 50-year or 100-year weather event. Okay. Um, and there's no shortage of uh, pictures in my phone of water that's all over the place. Um, and that, that whole area is in a bowl. And that's why we have pavers down there. We've got all these things to try to prevent it, but it's just not enough. And so the goal now is to make sure that we make everybody whole by taking care of this very critical issue. Are you willing to say on the record then y'all will give them fair value? Because People's Town was not that far from some of the other neighborhoods. Again, million-dollar homes. So y'all going to look up Zillow, put the address in there, and, and make them an offer? Or how does that work? All that's already been uh, in the works. And and when you look at Zillow, I think they're going to be very happy with what, what we've already been talking about with these families. Because you just said when you sell something, where are you going to go? Right, right. Exactly. On the record, it's not my goal to have someone's house that we need for this project, not not for just a project's sake, but for the safety of the whole community, where this water that sometimes feces and other stuff bubbles up because mm-hmm. of the, 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 the you know nature of that uh, system. Um these folks are going to be able to leave out of those homes and go into homes. And that what would y'all put there? Just some type of retention something? Oh, a or vault, a, a huge vault, vault 
that goes underground and to have a vault you got to have a pre-vault that you build um, to be able to manage the water while you build out the vault and then above that will be a garden like a uh, a pond and a garden etc similar to like old fourth ward park and uh, the west side park and and i want to honor my time to you but now you say this and if these folks leave we better not see a trader joe's pop up there oh no we're not gonna see a trader joe's <laughs> a family dollar or anything uh, we're gonna deliver what was uh what was required by the consent agreement and also what the, the city, city needs let's talk about then economic development and, yeah. and i'm going to ask this question again because i asked it to the previous administration what is going on with mall west end we've had this conversation and to my knowledge now three developers have pulled out mm-hmm. what's been the problem here yeah, so when I came into office, I had one of the first set of meetings I had was with Chuck Taylor, who's the owner of the West End Mall. And also a member of the WAB board, for full disclosure. Okay, all right, gotcha. Um, didn't know that. And um, also two teams that are the most recent teams that have uh, worked with him on that. Uh, now, to uh, make sure your listeners are aware, the, the Mall West End is a privately owned it is. location. So, but you all have but, some say. Yeah, we have some say because most of the projects that you would do there uh, are going to need some serious sewer work and infrastructure that's underground, which is going to require the city's actions and some, some a whole lot of infrastructure stuff. And we want to see a major development there that's got mixed income housing, that's got mixed use where you got retail, office, and maybe even a hotel. And of course, all that can be done right there and it benefit the AUC and the community. And that's who we want at the table. Let's talk about that mixed use yeah. Terminology. Because for some people, when they hear mixed use, they roll their eyes like, OK, they're going to put in like a CVS and they'll put in some, you know, high rise apartments and a few will be affordable. But what does that development look like, particularly for that community on the west side? Yeah. So, um, you know, mixed income is, you know, various housing units from, you know, you know, people that are market rate all the way down to 80 percent, 60 percent, 30 percent of area median income. So your school teachers all the way up to your school superintendent could live there. Um, that's what mixed income is. Now, mixed use means right. retail on the bottom where we have some shops because it's currently a mall. So mm-hmm. we want some of those existing tenants to be able to come back in there and have affordable rents. And then to also attract some new tenants that may be local that folks want to see there. And then above it, yes, above it, you will have apartments, condos or what have you and a Around it may be some office because there's no office space in, in, in that area. Should these developers talk to the community first Absolutely. before they come to you all? And, and whether they because most of them want a tax break or some type yep. of tax incentive. Yep. Some will say, well, we don't need it. I mean, unless you like Microsoft. But yeah. you prefer they really have an assessment uh, meetings and everything with the communities. Yeah. And then put something together and then say, this is what we're thinking about doing City of Atlanta, because it seems like. Often it's backwards. Right. They'll buy the property and say, hey, we'll come talk to you. And then, I mean, you know. Well, that's the, uh, you know, m- most of my re- responses to them is uh, let me know what MPUT says. Let me know what the AUC consortium says. Let me know what this uh, West End Neighborhood Association says, Oakland City. Let me know what they're saying. And then uh, I need to see the, you know, the tail of the tape from those um, from those uh, meetings. And then I send staff. Uh, my senior advisor is hands on with this. Uh, but but just rest assured, while we have not moved all the way forward just yet with a new, you know, a new um, 
uh, buyer is because I want to make sure that the community says yes to them, that the community says we've heard them. And a lot of people um, need to feel comfortable about this. This is legacy. This is important to Atlanta. This is where a lot of Atlantans went to get a lot of their goods and services oh, taken care of. I used to of. go over there, too. Yeah, yeah. And when we, um, we, we know that we need to do something with the Mall West End, it should be iconic and stabilizing for that community, and it should not cause problems, and it should also um, be something we're proud of. And that's why I keep pushing them back to uh, work it out. Where are you with Microsoft and in terms of their community engagement? And are you satisfied with what you've been hearing? Because you, again, you made a pledge. You told yeah. me, I want to go in and renegotiate, redo the deal, so to speak. Yeah. Where are we with that? Yeah, Microsoft is on their way. Uh, Microsoft is doing what they are supposed to do. They have hired a lot of local talent, a lot of local leaders that are community outreach folks. Uh, They're also um, engaging in the process of working with, they've already started working with the school that's nearby and working with the Community Grove Park uh, Neighborhood Association, Grove Park Foundation. Um, They they respond well to pressure uh, because I'm glad the community, this is me saying this out loud, Mm -hmm. put everybody on the spot. If I'm on the spot, put Microsoft on the spot. And I've talked to Microsoft extensively and said to them, you you guys are the size of a nation state. I mean, you know, there's countries that wish they were the size of Microsoft. So if we got a problem with education, if we got a problem with transportation, if we got a problem with uh, sustainability and, and, and the Proctor Creek watershed, if we got a problem with affordable housing, you're coming into our city, you are our nation state, you got to solve these problems like a government has to think about these problems. And they're saying, okay. And they've stood up organizational structures around that. Everything ain't fixed yet, but they are well on their way. And um, I'm hoping that uh, the community continues to push them to, on that. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens on yesterday's Closer Look. By the way, a lot of you have been responding to the so no comment I made about south of North Avenue, which apparently is a neighborhood. According to my producer, Daniel, WABE is in the No Chesh neighborhood, which is north of Cheshire Bridge. Back in a moment. From WAB in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia's primary runoffs will take place later this month. Now, meanwhile, those candidates who know their opponent, uh, they've wasted no time in campaigning and those ads that are addressing one another's stance on specific issues. You know it's at the top, right? The economy, gun ownership legislation, health care is always top of mind, Roe versus Wade, of course. And then there's the critical race theory, CRT, and add in what is called divisive concepts. Meaning. Now, the Georgia legislature, which many scholars and academics view as flawed, passed a law banning the teaching of divisive concepts, which, according to Georgia statute, refers to, quote, the United States is teaching that the United States is fundamentally racist and that one race is inherently superior to another race. Now, earlier this year, I spoke with Nicole Hannah-Jones. Y'all know her. Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who covers racial injustice for the New York Times magazine and creator of the landmark 1619 project. We talked all about this. And here's a little bit of our conversation because we began with Jones reflecting on the difference between teaching about racism and educating about racism. Or- um, it's an interesting question. Clearly, those two things are related, but I think teaching is um, in some ways just giving certain facts, but not really helping uh, to provide analyses with those facts, not contextualizing those facts. So you can teach something and someone can still come away not educated about it. Uh, You can teach that 
racism happened. Uh, you can teach that, um, you know, certain facts of our history, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that the child is ultimately coming away uh, educated about how racial injustice works, how systemic racism works, or even uh, the prevalence of anti-Blackness in the American story. So I, I see those as being the difference. You've said on a number of occasions, and I've heard you speak, you've said that, I'm going to quote you here, race and racism is foundational to the United States. Before there was the United States, it was decided that black Americans would not be treated as human beings, but as property. And that alone has been targeted by so many. And, and I know you get this question a lot, and so forgive me, but I think it's important through my lens as the journalist and host that people understand why you begin with that when, when we have this whole conversation about how we talk about this. Well, because it's true. And that's why I don't understand. I mean, the, the 1619 Project is a series of essays making an argument. And you can certainly disagree with some of the arguments that we're being made, that uh, we're making. You can say, well, I, I don't find those arguments to be convincing for whatever reason. But you can't argue with pure facts of history. Mm -hmm. And the pure facts of history are that um, every other American who immigrated to the United States came here because they chose to come here. That black people, African people were the only people who were being sold against their will um, and who had uh, the codification of laws that were defining and constraining their lives based on race. And that begins in 1619. Um, so that separation, that belief that uh, African people were not fully human, that they were chattel, that they were property that could be bought and sold, that um, they were not to be governed by laws as people, but to be governed as property. So for instance, you couldn't rape an enslaved woman uh, because uh, you couldn't rape an animal. And if you um, killed an enslaved person, or harmed an enslaved person, your claim was to the owner of that person, mm -hmm. not to uh, the person who actually did the harm to. So these are just facts of our history. Um, slavery, African slavery, racialized slavery, predates the founding of our country by 150 years. And at the founding of our country, uh, it is a major issue of concern, so much so that it is in uh, both the Declaration of Independence uh, and in the Constitution. So to me, the fact that people would find that surprising or upsetting uh, speaks to how thoroughly we have not been taught uh, a correct and accurate rendering of history. And I'll ask you one of the same questions I asked the guests of the first segment, because now we've seen not just here in Georgia, but other states, too, in terms of legislation or policies in an attempt to restrict or ban what's considered divisive concepts. And I asked them that. I'm going to ask you that. And when you hear that term, you know, what are you thinking? Well, we should be clear that these so-called anti-critical race theory laws are anti-history laws. They are memory laws. Um, uh, Anti-CRT has been an immensely successful propaganda campaign. And the laws are meant to be vague. They are intentionally vague. Uh, they are uh, designed uh, to appear not to do what it is that they're doing. And they are designed to be... Um, uh, enforced in a very arbitrary way. So what is a divisive concept? None of us know. Uh, but what we do know is it's signaling to white parents particularly that if, if there's a history, if there are lessons, 
uh, that you think are uncomfortable, that those lessons can be targeted. So let's just think about this idea uh, in my work. I get accused of creating divisive work. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that is that uh, work that actually points out the facts of racism, the facts of racial inequality, the facts of our history is divisive, but not talking about those things, even though uh, those things are still shaping our society, even though we have grave inequality, even though people are voting on racial issues. Uh, but if we don't talk about them, then that is somehow unifying. Um, so that that is what this language is about, is to pretend that those who actually want to acknowledge and address racial justice or injustice are the people who are dividing us and those who want to benefit from the systems but pretend they don't exist are the ones who are unifying us. And so often you know then that folks get a lot, a lot wrong about what is critical race theory, what it's supposed to be and what it's not. And then you have to counter with, well, let me tell you what it is not. And what do you tell them? Uh, I don't spend a lot of time saying what critical race theory is not because Mm -hmm. Again, I think to do that is to engage in the the propaganda campaign on the terms of the propagandists. What I do say is critical race theory is um, a sophisticated analysis of American society that seeks to understand why 60 years after the end of codified legal discrimination, we still see so much racial inequality. And it simply argues that structures that were put in place over the course of 350 years uh, still shape society, whether individual white Americans are racist or not, that those structures are self-replicating. And and I don't, again, think that that's a radical thing. I think that when advocates uh, played on the terms of propagandists by spending a lot of time saying, oh, critical race theory is not being taught in schools, it's not being taught in schools, instead of saying um, it should be taught in schools that we should teach our children a sophisticated analysis of their societies, that um, this is not something dangerous. We played on the terms of people who wanted us to be on the defensive about something that actually is is, is not um, something that should be prohibited from being taught. I have a question and a comment here from a listener who says, the fact that business and industry, chambers of commerce, for example, which have come out against the so-called don't say gay bill, religious freedom bills, et cetera, have been completely silent on these anti-CRT bills. In Georgia, students have been very vocal in voicing opposition to the bills, but big companies that came out in support of Black Lives Matter, et cetera, are suddenly silent. And these students are going to, are their future employees. Ask your guest how she feels about that, or does she have a reflection on that? Yeah, this is something that um, I've been talking about quite a bit. Um, I believe that businesses should be coming out strongly against Don't Say Gay. I think they should be coming out strongly against uh, these anti-trans bills that are targeting uh, trans children and their families. But I also, of course, have noticed that there has not been um, a massive pushback on behalf of corporations against these anti-history laws, Mm -hmm. uh, which are seen to be targeting Black Americans. Um, And I, I... I want to see uh, some good analysis of why that is. I have my thoughts about why that is. Um, But for instance, in Florida, the same day that uh, DeSantis signed into law the Don't Say Gay bill, he also signed into a law that prohibits corporations from doing diversity and inclusion training. Mm -hmm. Now, that law is specifically targeting business, and yet Disney did not come out against that bill. 
Um, so I think there's a lot of questions around um, what is acceptable and what is not. And uh, gay Americans are extremely targeted. Uh, what I've been saying is all of these bills are really trying to stro uh, stoke resentment against marginalized groups for political gain. And they tend to target, you know, black folks, trans folks, gay folks all at the same time. I just wish our allies uh, were willing to fight as hard against all of those areas. And I have another question here from a listener who wants to know, with your 1619 project, could you even and read it correctly? Could you have could you even have anticipated the backlash, Miss Hannah Jones? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I was I I mean, I knew that there was going to be some backlash, of course. I mean, it's, some of this was predictable. You don't create a project like this in the New York Times that argues that we were founded on slavery and not freedom, mm -hmm. that Black people have been the most democratizing force uh, in the history of this country, and not expect pushback. But I could not have imagined, you know, that the project would be banned all over the country, including uh, attempts to ban it in Georgia, Florida, Texas. Uh, that I would be targeted by everyone from Donald Trump to powerful senators to the secretary of state under the Trump administration. Um, no, I, I, I couldn't have predicted any of that. I want to ask you another question to ask the big three, too. When we start talking about race and racism and they all agreed that, you know what, maybe you start cradling this conversation in love first, particularly with little, little ones. What is your viewpoint on when do, should we start talking about racism with students? Uh, as soon as students are able to observe their world. I mean, this is the thing when um, white parents have the luxury of saying, you know, we have to wait until a certain appropriate age to introduce these ideas to their children. Mm -hmm. uh, black parents, uh, Latino parents, Asian parents, indigenous parents, we don't have that luxury because the world is going to introduce this to our children. And so we have to decide, as I did, you know, we were talking about, I can't remember when we weren't talking about race. Um, my daughter got her first book on slavery when she was three years old. Uh, we've always talked about civil rights movement. We've talked about, uh, you know, what's happening in society because I needed to build in my child an understanding of how the world would perceive and treat her before the world did that to her. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you find, if you spend any time around children, they are capable of quite sophisticated analysis. They have a, a strong sense of right and wrong and what is fair and what is just. Um, and I think we can introduce in age appropriate ways, of course, um, all of these concepts to children from a young age. Let me ask you, Nicole Hannah-Jones, because with what you just said in terms of the backlash, is there a different conversation that you have when it's people of color or black folks, if you have encountered that, that took issues with the 1619 Project? Yeah, I mean, um, most of the most of the criticism of the project has not been black folks, obviously. Sure. And uh, I would say the most um, legitimate criticism from black folks has been that perhaps the project is too patriotic. Um, really? That yeah, you know, some folks believe that. Um, in some ways, the project buys into these ideas of American exceptionalism. It just places Black people as kind of the heroes in the story. So there's been some criticism in that way. Um, but the criticism, and, and I'm willing to have that conversation. I don't necessarily agree. And, and I say all the time, I, uh, I'm i conflicted even about some of the arguments in the 1619 Project. I mean, I would hope that any major ambitious work 
um, would be up for debate mm -hmm. and that, you know, like all um, major intellectuals, that your mind changes over time, uh, that you don't think the same way about things um, throughout your entire life. Uh, but much of the criticism uh, from white Americans has really been about um, feeling white people didn't get enough credit in the story, mm -hmm. not wanting to emphasize so much, uh, you know, how foundational slavery and anti-blackness is, that it's not optimistic enough. And I, I don't think that that's legitimate criticism at all. That it's not optimistic Optimist. enough? Yes. Yes. You know, the way many, Interesting way of... <laughs> it is. Well, because what... Uh, the second to the last essay in the book is written by Ibram X. Kendi and it's called Progress. Mm -hmm. And I think it really taps on into this kind of fundamental aspect of American identity, which is this belief in progress. And so we're okay to say, you know, yes, things were bad back then, but we worked really hard and we were always making progress. So things are better than they used to be and they're going to keep getting better. So why do you have to keep focusing so much on the ugly things? What about the great things uh, that this country has done? Um, but that's not the point of a project on slavery, right? Absolutely. And in no other case uh, is that expectation. You're not going to do a story about the Holocaust and say, well, why don't you talk about the great things <laughs> that came that happened at the same time? But that's the expectation is that we can't talk about, uh, we have to balance the bad out with, with more good. Um, and the project doesn't seek to do that. Is there a follow-up to something like the 1619 Project that, should be in the works or you think is in the works or it, it, it is what it, it stands alone on what it is. Um, I mean, we're certainly uh, right now we're in production on the 1619 documentary series. Uh, it's a five part series. It's going to air next year on ABC and Hulu. Uh, we're going to do a young readers, uh, middle grades readers edition of the 1619 book. Um, and yeah, I think there, there are other works that, that will come out of the 1619 project, but as, as for the kind of original mm -hmm. text of the book, that is what it's going to be. That is Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones from our conversation April 6th of this year on Closer Look. We had a special regarding teaching about race and racism. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rizel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.